You're listening to the brand new episode of In Love With The Process. I'm your host, Mike Petchy. Come on in. Have a seat. How are you? How's things? How's life? Have you been making anything new? Have you uh, tried out some new recipes? Have you uh, read some new comic books? What are you watching? You know, what are you eating? Have you planned some trips? Are you going somewhere interesting? Have you met some interesting new people? Have you got out of the house? Have you gone out, hung out with strangers, had an interesting story that has inspired some new film or some new photo shoot or some new idea? Like, what are you doing? What are you doing right now? Are you stuck in your job? Have you been lying to yourself, right? Next time, next week, I'll get this thing done. I'll tell you what, I'm still lying to myself. I'm recording this show when I should be prepping my new film this this week. I'm just so far behind on podcasts right now that I'm trying to bank as many as I can. And last night I woke up sweating going, what the fuck, man? You're supposed to be writing today. <laughs> Welcome to the brand new episode of In Love With The Process. I'm your host, Mike Petchy. How are you? What's happening? Have a seat. Uh, it's going to be a great episode. I'm talking to um, a writer, a fellow director, uh, a fellow Bostonian, original Bostonian who has, uh, uh, you know, risen to the position of being a showrunner, to the position of being a film director, to the position of owning his own comic book company. Um, today's guest is right up my alley. He's right up your alley. And, uh, what I love about our guest today is that he has always been the person to share, and he is someone that tells the truth about how he got to where he is, about how he processes his uh, successes, and how he deals with his failures the same way we do here on the show. So it was only a matter of time before I got Z Chun on the show. Now, for those of you who don't know, uh, Z has been a showrunner or he's been a writer on the Gotham Once Upon a Time on television. Uh, he is uh, putting together a show running the new Gremlins animated series that's on a, on Max. It's not HBO Max anymore. It's just Max. Um, and um, like I said, he runs a uh, production. Uh, he runs a comic book company. Get your mind together, Michael. He runs a comic book company called TKO where they publish some of the best books in the business. And um, he's just a cool dude. Him and I uh, really, this is the first time we've met and you'll hear it on the show. We start to connect. It takes a bit, but we get there, man. And uh, there's a lot of parallels. He's a, a bit further in his career than I am, um, uh, but he's a very smart dude. Um, and I cannot wait for you guys to hear this conversation. But before we get into it, I want to thank everybody for following me on Instagram. That's at Mike Petchy on Instagram. I'm following the podcast. That's in love with the process pod on Instagram. There uh, we have been. What have we been doing lately? I've just been posting uh, the adventure shots from last week or the week before last week. Whenever this episode comes out, when we were at Cinegear and hanging out in the Paramount Studios lot, uh, checking out a lot of new equipment, meeting these sponsors of the show. A lot of fun. I spent... Most of the week hanging out with cinematographers. It was just the cinematographer hangout town. Um, uh, I was at the cinematography salon party. And Crude uh, and I were talking about this. And I hope someone does it. I don't know. Maybe we can do it. He should do it. Uh, but I really feel like when I go to these events, right? You go to something like the cinematography salon party or 
uh, any of these other sort of, uh, you know, camera centric events, it's mostly other cinematographers hanging out with cinematographers. And most of the conversations that happen in that space are, are you working right now? What have you done? Someone might pull out their phone and show you some really cool clips of the movie they did, but they're essentially sharing stories and hanging out and having beers with their competition, which is fine, you know, but then it, what are the real connections that are getting made here, right? I always feel like, you know, the woman in the red dress from The Matrix when I walk into those things because I'm a director, right? And all these guys are sort of looking over and coming over and they're talking like, hey, how's it going? What's happening? You, you feel like the only hot girl in the room, you know? Um, and I think that a better party, a better suited party for something like that would be to have a get-together with directors and cinematographers, right? Have a party with directors and cinematographers, especially because I know a lot of directors that need to find great cinematographers, a lot of directors that are looking for good shooters, for people that are willing to go to bat for them, for people that uh, haven't quite made it to the point in their career where they're too good to do free work. And I hate to say it, but that's what it requires. Our job requires so much free work. You, you, how much have I been paid for my proof of concepts that I do? Nothing. It's the only way to get things going, to get things started. And I feel bad for actors and cinematographers and folks that are relying upon a director and a storyteller um, because directors tend to be like these, you know, closed off little mogwai, <laughs> like hidden away in our own little chamber somewhere, afraid of uh, sunlight and afraid of, uh, of water, <laughs> you know? And so uh, I think we got to process that. What do you guys think? Is that a good idea? There should be some sort of meeting of the minds, right? Because yeah, especially when you're doing films, it's like, you know, it's speed dating for relationships that could last for a while. I don't know. Something I was thinking about. Um, well, anyway, uh, in other news, uh, yes, we do have uh, new pets. They are behind me now. Uh, they're finally getting used to my voice. Gina has her two rats and they are in the place. It turns out that I am not allergic to them, which is cool. And uh, they're all right. They're cool little moody things hanging out. We got a little fat boy and we have uh, a little skinny guy. She found this breeder that uh, apparently makes the cutest animals. So that's it. I guess I am uh, the dad of uh, two rats right now. Which is cool, right? I guess, you know, being a guy that's been allergic to everything, I guess it's kind of cool that I could be around these things, you know, as long as you guys keep it down, keep it down back there. Don't look at me. Don't look at me like you own this place. Get out of here. Anyway. Um, all right. Well, without further ado, let's get into today's episode. Um, Z and I are about to go deep back in time, uh, share origin stories, uh, really share, uh, the truth behind what it's like to try to make it in this business on the brand new episode of In Love With The Process.
Z, thanks for being on the show. How are you, buddy? I am good. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk to you, man. This has been, uh, been trying to make this happen for a few weeks now. And uh, I'm pumped, man. I'm really ha- yeah. happy that you're here. Me too. Uh, so a bunch that I want to talk to you about, uh, because you've had quite the career so far, uh, and quite the start in the career. And um, our show is uh, for younger filmmakers. It is for people that are, you know, trying to find their motivation, trying to stay motivated as it takes right. so many years before anybody gives a shit about us. <laughs> um, so you're great. You're a great guest for the show because of everything that you've been through. So I'm excited to get into it, man. Um, that's great. I mean, I feel like, you know, when I came up, there just, there were like a couple outlets where you could learn about filmmaking, like, you know, uh, DVD commentary, filmmaker magazine. Um, but in the past, you know, 10, 15 years, it's just been great to see people taking things into their own hands and starting things like this podcast. And, um, you know, there's, there are just so many resources for young filmmakers. It's really incredible right now. Yeah, man. And that was one of the reasons why I started the show was a few years ago. It was like six years ago. I was looking because, you know, you're scrubbing through DVD commentaries and you're looking for the truth. It's like, how did you handle that actor thing that you had to go through? Or like you're flipping through the pages of American Cinematographer and you're trying to get past all the bragging that happens in there. And, (laughs) you know, what light units did you use for this thing? And it's just impossible. And it, it seems like most things, or it seemed like most things were just put through an Instagram filter and it was, you know, PR and promotional stuff. And um, we wanted to do it a little differently and talk about the realities of the world that we live in and how fun and how crazy and how depressing (laughs) this business can be altogether, you know? No, totally. I mean, I feel like, especially now where um, social media allows you to really communicate directly with um, your audience. And, you know, I know that there's a lot of folks that follow me on Twitter that are, uh, you know, pre WGA or, you know, want to break into screenwriting. And I, I found that those platforms are actually really great in order to communicate information that I wish that I had known when I was mm-hmm. starting out, just because, uh, you know, early days of the internet trying to become a filmmaker, it's just, uh, it was not the easiest thing. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> and for sure. And it just seems like, you know, trying to get into this business is never an easy thing. Uh, yeah. cause, cause it's ever shifting and there's no such thing as uh, gravity when it comes to how these things work. But um, I'd love to uh, to talk about all your stuff. And I did watch the first episode of the new Gremlin series last night. Oh, it was cool. Great. It was great. Cool, cool. It was great. Um, so let's start, let's start at the beginning. What came first for you? Was it art or writing? Um, I guess it was probably art. So when I was in lower school and middle school, I wanted to be a comic book artist. And I got really into comic books. And then as I was drawing them um i was like oh who's gonna put words in all these balloons <laughs> so i said well someone's gotta do it i guess i'll do that part too and uh i just started writing that way and i found that it was really fun i mean back in the day it was like all i needed was a um blank piece of paper and yep. a pencil and some inks and um you could tell a story and that was really incredible in terms of like uh, just a mental shift to be like, Oh, I can do this. This is really fun. And like, it's something I could do in my f- free time and not anybody's, no one's going to read it, but it was just a, it was just a fun thing to do. And so kind of art came first and visuals came first for me. I was the same way, man. Like when I was a kid, I started 
uh, well, you know, my mom was concerned with me because uh, I was never reading books. And so she went to a drugstore, grabbed a handful of comic books and threw them at me and said, <laughs> read these. They have pictures in them. <laughs> uh, and I became obsessed at that same age and, and really started to sketch and, and trace. And then I started to draw things. And th those are the first, I used to sell my sketches to my classmates in middle school. And that was the first time I felt like I had an audience, like a paying audience. Um, we but had a, um, we had a, a woodworking class and, you know, a lot of kids made like lemonade stands and shoe boxes and things like that. And I made a, a, a comic book stand so that, <laughs> um, you know, my dad worked at a place with a photocopier and, you know, my sister and I would we would photocopy our our comics and then staple them together and try to sell them. I mean, I think we sold like one to the neighbor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but selling that one must have been amazing. That must have felt really good. It was funny. I mean, in terms of, I'll probably tell a lot of stories about like my mom really being encouraging throughout like my life. But I remember when I sold this comic and it was like whatever fifty cents or something. She's like, she said. Well, any anything you sell, I'll give you an X. I'll I'll double it by giving you that same amount. So I made a dollar off the first ooh, comic. Incentive. <laughs> <laughs> That's really nice. Yeah. yeah, I mean, this is something uh, that I talk about a lot on this show with talented people, and and really, I felt very fortunate because I had uh, you know parents that uh, really sort of nourished my talent. It, it seems. Um, that that's an important thing, right? I mean, it may not be your parents. It may be an aunt and uncle or someone that you meet or a teacher or someone that you get at an early age that really sort of pushes you in the right direction or supports you going in the right direction. I, I think if you don't grow up in, an, in the industry of whatever you're trying to pursue, I think it's really hard um, without, whether it's a parent or a parental figure or even friends that you see have have done it to some degree or encourage you to do it because mm. just that mental shift. I mean, I grew up outside of Boston. Um, Me too. Not an industry town, obviously. <laughs> yeah. Like, nope. There was like one movie, one movie shot there every you know year or two when I was growing up and it was always like the biggest deal. Um, Wait, where'd you grow up? What, what, what town I, did you grow up? I grew up, up in Randolph, Mass. No, no kidding. My dad worked in Randolph. I grew oh, up. Oh, really? I grew up in Framingham, Mass. Oh, okay. Where'd yeah. he work in, in Randolph? Uh, he worked at a bank, so he was a okay. he was a banker. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. That's funny. Um, so you know, it's it's you know, growing up in that environment, it's like just to mentally say to yourself, "Oh, this is a career path that people can do." Is just a very it's a it's a tough leap, and I think um, you know, whenever I hear stories about people's parents being really supportive of it, I mean, I think that that's that's really nice because as a kid, it's a little scary. To yeah. be like, well, I'm going to pursue a thing that no one I know does. And then if I do it, then I have to leave town and go to Los Angeles. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Yeah, yeah, man. I mean, like, like, same thing, dude. Like, when I was younger, my parents, when I decided that I wanted to be a filmmaker, my parents were very supportive. But I had my dad, who was, like I said, he was a banker, so he's in finance. So he understood finance, but he was also a painter. And he had, mm. he loved to do both. And I remember... He's like, you got to raise money for your first film. 
<laughs> we'll put on a pasta dinner, so we'll invite everybody to the house. You need to make something, and then we'll do a fundraiser at the back of the house. And we did like this pasta dinner that's fundraising. Amazing. That's that's so awesome. <laughs> yeah, it was a blast, man. I, I love my parents. <laughs> uh, okay. When you were growing up, just I mean, in terms of the Massachusetts of it, did you call it gravy or did you call it sauce? Because I grew up with people calling it gravy. Gravy? Pasta. Really? That was- <laughs> yeah, pasta sauce. <laughs> I think it's like a suburbs of Boston, like also like a New Jersey thing. Yeah, I think like, it's more of a New Jersey. You must have had a lot of New Jersey people living around you. Yeah, because I remember people saying, like, I went over to someone's house and they were like, yeah, you know, it was pasta with gravy. And I was like, that sounds disgusting. Like, pic- yeah, <laughs> picturing like KFC chicken gravy. <laughs> Or Not some brown gravy with mushrooms being <laughs> poured over linguine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, man. No, it was pasta sauce when we were pasta kids. Pasta sauce, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's funny. <laughs> uh, so, <clears throat> all right. So then you, uh, so writing was a necessity for you, right? Because you wanted to illustrate these books and then you had to fill those bubbles, right? So where did it go from there? Did you, was it always going to be comic books for you or did you have your eyes on on movies? It was always comics um, all through probably freshman year of high school. Mm -hmm. And what happened in freshman year of high school was we had this class called, um, I don't even, it was just like an intro. It was like a literature class, but the teacher really loved the movie, The Graduate. So kind of like, you know, in high school, sometimes a teacher will just do something that doesn't really have to do with the curriculum. They, he just showed us, it was, his name was Mr. Ziliak's. Mm-hmm. Um, and he showed us the graduate, um, and he did the thing which I had never, I've never seen done before in a class where he would pause it like every five to 10 seconds and call out all the craft that I had never really noticed in a movie before, like yeah. music, yeah. um, staging, um, the type of, uh, camera lens that they used, um, color, uh, metaphor. Um, and what was really interesting was seeing it in that way. I just, it unlocked just how much work and how much control, uh, someone has when they're creating a movie. Um, at the time, you know, I think it was heyday of auteur theory. Um, obviously now I know that there's hundreds of people (laughs) that contribute to the look and feel of a movie. Um, But at the time I felt, um, wow, there's so much that goes into making a movie. And then if I make a movie, I just have to pick up a camera and I don't have to draw every single panel (laughs) of a comic book. And that definitely appealed to me. And I was really lucky in that we had an AV department that you could hang out at. You could rent a, at the time it was called a super VHS camera, which had like 400 lines of resolution. I think Mm -hmm. it was like 200. And then we had a um, tape to day uh, editing station. Nice. So I looked at that and I was like, it's, it was really being used for people to film plays and like do school, like PSAs and things like that. But you know, you could, you could rent out the equipment as long as nobody was using it. And um, I just started recruiting my friends and making movies uh, starting freshman year of, of high school. Very cool, man. Very cool. Uh, I, my, my awakening was a little bit later. It was when I was first year in college and that was, then and it's funny to me because I never I always loved movies I watched movies but I never really thought about them and I never mm-hmm. it wasn't like I believed that Indiana Jones lived in a box in my living room <laughs> but but I never really thought about them until 
I had a teacher do the same thing. We were watching Blade Runner, and it was the first time oh, I had cool. seen Blade Runner, and my face was blown off when I watched that. And then uh, halfway through, he stopped it, and he goes, what do you think of the wardrobe? And I was like, what? <laughs> you're, it's like suddenly you take the pill, and you're in the Matrix, you know, and you're like, and you're like oh, my God, I understand how this whole thing works. Um, yeah, I fell in love with it the same way, man. Same and way. And then did you pursue, were you making your own projects through college, or were you, did you, was that something you pursued after school? Uh, my, my path was interesting. So I, prior to doing that stuff, I was an artist and, and strangely like a car mechanic and an airplane mechanic. I used, I was working with my <laughs> hands a lot. And so I was very, you know, uh, very concerned about money because I made my own cash. So I paid for everything. Mm -hmm. And so when I decided that I wanted to, cause I went to college initially to be a radio DJ and I, <laughs> I had my <laughs> cool. Yeah, I had my first show. It was like three three a.m. at night. Had my first show, and the and the uh, programmer came in and said, "At the bottom of the hour, you play every CD with a green sticker. At the top of the hour, you play every CD with a red sticker." And I'm like, "What? Why the fuck am I here, man?" <laughs> like, so <laughs> instantly, I was out, and I just took that film course as a filler, really. Mm. And so when I had that come to Jesus moment, essentially, I, I went down to the guidance counselor. And I said to him, like, okay, I want a camera in my hands. I want to do this. And it was a very sort of rigid school at that time. And they were like, well, you need to take this course and you still need to do all your accredited courses and you got to do all that. And I'm like, why? And he's like, well, because you have to. And I'm like, how much do each one of those courses cost? And he told me the price for each course. And I said, I'm out of here. Um, <laughs> and so, like, I bailed on that and, and uh, hunted real hard to find – a school, and this was a while ago, I hunted real hard to find a school that would just put a camera in your hands in the first year. And I found like this film program in New York and uh, packed my bags and went to New York for a year and That's learned cool. how to shoot movies and produce movies on film and edit on Steam back in, in, in a city I had never been before in New York City. So it was crazy. It was fun. Man. Amazing. Yeah, yeah. It was fun. Um, so you started shooting stuff in high school, and then did you pick a college specifically for film because you were in love with it, or was it just a hobby for you at that time? You know, I knew at the end of high school, because I had made, it really became all-consuming. Like, we, I made, oh God, I made two features and a bunch of short films and music videos in high school, and just, wow, that was dude. all I was doing. Wow. Um, and... You know, I really loved the process, and I was really impatient. I wanted to get my life started. I wanted to get my career started. And um, I went to Columbia undergrad, which doesn't really have a film production component. It's really like a film studies program. There's yeah. like, I think maybe there's one like video production class, and there's a screenwriting class. Um, but I just wanted to be in New York. You know, this was 1998, and mm -hmm. I was kind of sick of being – in Boston and being like, okay, you know, filmmaker magazine, I think had come out with um, like the top 50 most important independent films of all time. And I just remember st standing in blockbuster with the magazine in my hand being like, <laughs> I can't find any of these. Like the only one they had was a woman under the influence. And I was just, I was like, I got to get out of here. I got to be able to be in a place where I can watch movies that have revival theater houses and, you know, at the time, it was also all of my filmmaking heroes had come out of New York, you yeah, know? Um, yes. And so 
I knew that I wanted to be there. And I had taken like one or two trips to New York prior to that. Uh, one of them was actually to watch um, Wong Kar Wai's Happy Together, which I don't believe was playing in Boston. So I took the bus up, stayed with a friend, and um, I was so excited to see the movie. I went downstairs to to go pee before the movie started. And uh, it was before the internet, really. Like <laughs> Wong Kar Wai was there. He was in the bathroom and he was like getting ready to like go and intro the movie. And I remember sitting in the front row and being like, I'm like 10 feet away from this guy who like really inspired me to make movies. Yeah. I'm like, I'm, I'm, I'm getting to New York. I thought that was just like a regular Tuesday night. So I was just like, all right, I'm, I'm going to New York immediately. after this. <laughs> so cool, man. His movies were amazing. And it's funny listening to your story because we're, Literally the same time period. I went to New York, nineteen ninety-eight. Same time mm-hmm. period. Same things. It's hysterical. Um, fuck yeah, man! All right, so then, so you you find a way to go to New York. Is that what happens next? Do you find a, a way to move there, or what? what went to what's New next York, uh, attended Columbia undergrad, and I knew that it was not going to be a um, film production education. But I also felt pretty confident that, given that. I had been able to put all this stuff together when I was just in high school that it would, I could continue to do that. And so um, in college I made again, like two features, a bunch of short films and um, it was kind of the same pathway. It wasn't that much different. It was extracurricular, tried to link up with people that could produce the movie for me and, um, mm-hmm. And then put ads like in dorms, you know, like stickering dorm, like doors (laughs) being like, uh, we're doing auditions at this time and place and then auditioning people and trying to just do as, you know, it's funny thinking about it now. It's a little bit like cosplaying film production, (laughs) (laughs) just kind of like, I think this is what you do. And then like going out and doing it. And thank God I wasn't ever like, oh, what if this doesn't work? I just wanted to continue to produce stuff. And yeah, I did that all through college and made a bunch of like, not great movies, but learned a lot of things. Yeah. I mean, uh, same sort of stuff with me, man, with like, you know, running casting sessions out of a Barnes and Noble, like (laughs) trying to figure out, trying to figure out how to find people, you know? Uh And and I, you know, I still use those tricks today. I still use a lot of the stuff that I learned in that city. And when I, Especially if I have to, you know, do a proof of concept or if I have to run and gun and do something of my own. I'm, and it, it's funny to me how many people in this business don't have those skills, like don't actually have the production skills. Yeah. I mean, I, I am thankful that even though, you know, during that time, it was really like um, everything was just super glued together. I still learned, you know, every aspect of the production process and you know obviously the scale has gotten bigger but the actual job is kind of the same yeah, um yeah just trying to make creative decisions and uh you know i mean it, it was also it was just also interesting it was a good lesson in that um when you start working and making something like a a feature um hold on let me my screen turned off no worries when you start making a, a feature in in college um pretty quickly you see the people who are kind of like um, really excited and down to do something. And then other folks that are kind of like flakier. Um, and that was kind of like a, uh, a good, it was a good truth for myself just to be like, you can't expect everybody to care about your projects as much as you do. 
Um, and you so have true. to like kind of um, just you have to nurture the morale of, of the team. So true. It's so true. You have to be. <laughs> it's almost like you're Noah with an ark it's at a certain <laughs> point where you have to be the person that is motivating each and every individual on that piece. And I find that when I'm directing, especially if I'm doing independent stuff, if I'm directing, it really is just like you're you're a father figure, you're a therapist. You know, you're everything to to get your paintbrushes essentially to to, to get to work, man. And it's yeah. It, I I think in the beginning when I was younger, I was frustrated by it, but that now as I get older and I've been in it longer, I enjoy it. I actually love the the communal aspect of one of the most social jobs in the in on the planet, which is yeah. directing. You know, it's so much fun. So, <clears throat> all right. So then. What's your transition? So, you know, if you if you look at your IMDb, it looks like you went from doing short film stuff to directly to writing for television. What was the transition for you? So, yeah, it's um, so when I was uh, close to the end at um, at school, um, some folks were talking about the next step, and for a lot of folks, it was well, I want to go to grad school. But I also kind of felt like. I felt like the learning process in college was a lot of uh, things that were self-generated and I didn't really want to go into a, you know, three or four year program where um, it was going to be something where I was paying a lot of money to do something that I was already doing on my own. Right. And so I kind of made a, um, a schedule for myself and I, I think it was a numbers game. Mm-hmm. And I've done this at various points in my career, but I said to myself, um, at the time I was also, I'd, I'd been in an art show and I was selling a lot of paintings, portraits of people. And um, I was like, I'm going to paint portraits for a living. Um, and then I'm going to put together uh, a no budget short film that I'll write and direct every six months. And I'll write a feature film every nine months. And I'm going to do that until I can break into this industry. Smart. Very and, smart. Um, and I, I did that. I did. I ended up doing twelve short films in three and a half years. Um, budgets range from like a hundred dollars to like f- maybe a thousand dollars. And my eleventh short film, um, Window Breaker. Um, and you know, and I've, I've actually told the story. It's, it's worth getting into just because I think it's um, it tells you a lot about like rejection and. Um, Okay. Being able to stomach it because, you know, I, I felt I had done 11, uh, 12 short films. And my 11th one was a short called Window Breaker. It was my per- most personal work. It cost $600. My mom was in it. I really felt I had done something pretty good with it. Mm-hmm. It was the first time I had felt that. And at the time, I mean, you remember um, things like without a box, like you would, you would like submit a DVD <laughs> to a film festival and they would like mail you a rejection letter. Yes. Um, yes. And, and window breaker was rejected from 25 film festivals. Oh my um, God. Man. Yeah. And I was living in Brooklyn. Um, and uh, you know, every day I would go back to my mailbox and I would open up the mailbox and sometimes there'd be like two or three, rejection letters uh, that I would just like open up one after another. <laughs> and I remember like, I was really, for lack of a better term, like I, I mean, I can sugarcoat it, but I was just really sad. Like I was like, Oh my God, this is awful. And it got to the point where the Sundance um, submission time was coming up. And I said to myself, I mean, should I even bother? 
I know, um, I know. Seventy five dollars or whatever it was. And I was like, <laughs> it always seems like a place to throw away money whenever you submit to Sundance. <laughs> so I submitted to Sundance, and then I continued to get these rejections. Like every day, I, I mean, part of me was like, I don't even remember submitting to all these, and I'm getting rejections <laughs> from them. And then I got a phone call from Kim Yutani from Sundance, and she was like, um, "Hey, Z, I, I, I have some good news. Your your short film got into Sundance." Wow. And uh, I remember telling her, uh, I actually just ran into her recently. I remember telling her, um, "Oh, I think I'm going to pass out." She was like, "Don't do don't do that. But you should sit down." <laughs> <laughs> and um, it was really interesting. You know, I went to Sundance that year. That was the first time I really met like met people in the industry, but also of those 25 film festivals that had rejected us the previous year, I would say like the majority of them, like 90% of them sent automatic acceptance letters for the short, um, because for you the got following it. year, because you got yeah, it at Sundance. Cause we had played at Sundance. Why um, do you, why do you think they rejected you initially? Um, you know, I, I've been with friends who are, um, like first round, uh, judges or first round of, you know, looking at stuff. And, you know, there's just a volume, you mm-hmm. know, I think that all these film festivals, they get, you know, thousands of submissions and you never know if somebody is really watching or paying attention. And, mm-hmm. um, and, and, you know, I shot it, listen, the, the short film, um, I shot it on mini DV. It's all non-actors. Um, I held the camera, the, the, producer um brian wilson uh acted in the movie when he was not holding the boom and shot <laughs> that he wasn't in and so you know i i can i understand it like when you first watch it it's kind of like oh is this like a completely is this person like beyond amateur um right but i was i i feel like the movie is um crafted in a way where if you watch it for the first couple minutes you you start to realize like oh there's like some <laughs> there's some narrative stuff that they're doing that is um, purposeful as opposed to just like, um, Oh, they didn't have a good camera or whatever it was. There's a, there's a quote circling around. I, th- I saw it a few days ago on the internet and it was uh, about Christopher Nolan's first movie. And he was, mm-hmm. he was saying in his film, he spent his money. He spent a lot of his money and all of his time in the first six minutes of his movie. And that's the only place that he's got dolly shots. It's the only place that he does specific, <laughs> you know, traditional Hollywood stuff. And he blows all his loot there. Uh, Cause he knows that he needs to capture them. And he was hoping that after six minutes, they would at least be in the story. So that as everything sort of falls apart later, he'd still be in. So it, it makes sense, man, that, that breaking that, that entry, getting in that, getting that attention spent early on is, is tough, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, it was specifically suited, I think for, for Sundance for whatever reason. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, so that's just like, so after I went to Sundance in 07, I got a manager to hip pocket me. Um, I was sending him script after script of, you know, indie film and wanted to direct and, he just kept on being like, I, I don't know what to do with any of this stuff. And then I think it was, it was at the point where he was going to like stop hip pocketing me, hip, hip pocketing means he didn't, you know, he doesn't for the, uh, for people who don't know, um, uh, they're, um, it's like when a representative, like an agent or manager, like soft signs you, they kind of say like, okay, well I'll send you out on some meetings and I'll read you. Um, but there's no kind of guarantees. And yeah, 
I remember this phone call. He, I, I was standing in my, uh, I was also writing with a writing partner at that time for some stuff. And, um, the manager called and he was like, um, so I think, um, I'm not sure what to do. You know, there's not much that I can sell. And I was like, um, we also have this pilot. And he was like, why didn't you say that two months ago? And I was like, I don't know. I, just, I, don't, I don't know what to say and what not to say. And he was like, well, send me the pilot. Um, and then he got us staffed on our first TV job, um, me and my writing partner. This was back in 07. And um, I jumped into uh, network TV. It was a TV show called Cashmere Mafia. Um mm-hmm. And uh, it's still the thing on my IMDb that I think confuses the most people. And they think it's like maybe, I <laughs> think that maybe like someone else's credit uh, was attributed to my page. Um, but I, I really did work on it. And I really, like, I made a lot of good friends. And, and the showrunner was, you know, an amazing person. And it was a good introduction to television, even if it was not necessarily a genre that I was pursuing as much. Um, to be able to learn what that what writing for TV looked like at that age, I think was really helpful to me in terms of like long term plans. And then, sure, it must know, have been, the in, yeah, it must have been a shock for you, right? Because it, you were going from you know writing all your own stuff, you know, running your own productions, doing all of that, to just then being put into a machine that is you know a writer's room and is a television. Television is completely different than doing film, so it must have been a shock for you. Yeah, I mean the collaborative nature of it. Um, I, I mean, I think it was. I was really lucky in that because it wasn't something that I was really hell bent on pursuing. I can the opportunity kind of fell into my lap and my writing partner's lap. Um, I wasn't as scared and nervous as years later when I rejoined. TV and wanted to really pursue TV, I, I found myself even like less free because there was so much riding on it because I didn't know what else to be, I could be doing. Um, and I knew that I needed to make it in TV in order to make a living. Mm. But back in 07, I was just kind of like a dumb kid who like, you know, I worked on this show for five, six months. And, I, and frankly, like I knew so little about TV that even when the show was over, I, this, I'm like showing my hand here, but <laughs> even when the show was over, I never really fully understood why the show was an ABC show, but we were writing at Sony. Like I didn't understand the difference between like a studio and a network and, right. I, and, and, you know, um, <laughs> thank God the, all the writers were so kind in the room. Um, but yeah, I was a big dum dumb. Well, dude, I, I love stories like that, right? Because you get, you hear these stories, and this is what we kind of hope for when we're younger. When we're younger filmmakers, is like that opportunity, you know, like someday a producer sees your thing in a in a short film thing, or you happen to stumble into a place and you meet this producer, and he's like, "Come with me, kid," you know, and and then you're th- <laughs> you're you're thrust into this room, and you know the the famous stories of how Spielberg sort of processed that. It's it's always fun and interesting because it's not like deciding that you want to be a firefighter. You know what I mean? It's not like you go off to fire Academy and then someday they're like, okay, kid, grab the hose. And you're like, I've trained for this my whole life. You know, you get thrust into these rooms where you're like, what are the fucking rules in here? Like, what do I I do? You know? I know. I mean, I mean, 
it's one of the funniest. Whenever I explain to somebody what the job of a showrunner is, they're always like, okay, so it's just like the creative part. I'm like, no, it's, it's like the kind of the chief creative voice, but also like running the show, you know, like um, yeah, yeah. managing the entirety of the production. And anyone not in the industry is like, oh, but that's like a totally different job. And I'm like, I know. <laughs> it's like, it's wild that like, hey, you're really good at writing words on a page. Now you should go and manage 400 people on set in an incredibly intense environment. <laughs> <laughs> why do you with zero training? You know <laughs> why do you think it? Why do you think it is that way? You know, it is just. I think that back in the day, um, the whether whether it was ever like fully f- uh, formalized. There was still a, okay, you're writing on shows, you're working your way up, you're doing network television, you're going to set, you're watching how the production happens. And um, by the time you would be pitching a show and you would be a co-EP or an EP at the level where you know they really trusted you to show run your show, you would have had all that experience. You know, yeah, five, ten years of being on set. But you know, I know co-EPs who are incredible writers, they just have never, because of the way that TV is produced now, there's not that same um development in terms of production you know i know co-eps that have never been on set one time um yeah and that's a tall order you know to ask somebody who has never been on set to be like hey first time you're on set you should be running your own show with millions of dollars (laughs) at stake and everybody looking at you assuming you know what you're doing i've talked to a lot of showrunners and i've had a few on the show and we've gotten into Mm -hmm. this and how stressful that job is and how intense Mm -hmm. that job is because it's really your neck on the chopping block for yeah for all that man (laughs) (laughs) it's crazy uh so did you fall in love with television because you've done a lot of it is it so yeah i mean so this was a different time you know this was 2007 and you know, I was still, my heart was still an independent film. I wanted to do indie film. That was still like something I hadn't felt like I had gotten to the end of because I just had a short Sundance. And network TV was different. You know, TV was different at that time. Um, mm. The Sopranos had ended. Mad Men was on TV. And it was kind of like, I remember people being like, okay, well, God, it'd be great to work on Mad Men or Pushing Daisies. But that was like, that was it wasn't like now where it's like every week there's another really creative, interesting show out there. Um, and so my heart was still really an independent film. And, um, since we're talking about, um, failures and things like that, I mean, being at Sundance in 07 was really interesting in that, you know, I thought that when I got into Sundance that everything would open up, I would get an agent, people would be interested. They would want to finance one of my feature scripts I had lying around. And it just wasn't the case. You know, I had one um, general meeting um, at the Weinstein company. Um, God, God rest their souls. Um, (laughs) And like the, the uh, nothing was really happening. It was just like, um, and I remember I went there with a lot of of filmmakers who were, in the same shorts programs. And I very quickly, I, I, I would say that like, uh, I'll, in terms of like my, the ability to like wrap my head around a pathway that is not um, really like a true pathway was something that was helpful for me in that time. In that very quickly, I could tell that um, um, this was not going to be the experience that I thought it was going to be. Mm. Uh, I remember, there were other short filmmakers who said things like, um, 
I remember somebody told me point blank, like, you know, after this short, you know, I'm not going to um, accept anything less than a three picture deal from a studio. <laughs> and one other short filmmaker said, um, you know, I can't think of, about making a movie if it's less than $5 million. I just can't. And, you know, they were, they were, there was this, uh, uh, expectation that something huge was going to happen to them. And, and I was like, guys, like we can't even get into the parties, like, w- like let alone get into the industry. Like we, we are having to like, like lie to even get on the list of like a party for like, you know, the New York film commission or something. And so yeah. I quickly just felt like, okay, this is, I need to create something that is going to be a no brainer. I can't, I have to, I have to, create a script that's going to be very easy to produce. And then, you know, when I was working in TV and um, the writer's strike happened in 07, which kind of, you know, we had just gotten our WGA cards and um, we went on a strike. It was during that strike that I was like, I have to write something that is going to be a personal project that is going to be so hard to say no to because it's going to be so low risk. Um, yeah. And that's what I did for my first feature. I wrote this movie called Children of Invention and went on strike in October, finished the script in like January, February, and we started shooting it in July. Um, it was 150K. Nice, um, nice, man. And they played at Sundance in, in 09. So it was two years between the short and the feature. Okay, time to take a sec and uh, do some sponsor reads. And uh, if you've been a listener of the show, you know that I just don't do sponsor reads. We often, I fall into tangents and holes during these things. So you might learn something. So don't skip past it. You know what I mean? Um, So first up, our friends over at Puget Systems. Are you looking to buy a new computer? Have you thought about buying a PC? I know, PCs, are they unstable? Now, come on, man. What is this, the early 2000s? I love my PC. I run an amazing Puget Systems PC. I uh, cut most of my stuff in Adobe. I'm doing uh, DaVinci Resolve color grading, even though they're trying to get me to do editing. Maybe I'll start to do some editing in there. But your whole system is a little weird. And like, why when I right click, it doesn't say cut or rename. It says like change name, like, Come on, every other program says that. Anyway, um, if you are in the business uh, and you want an uh, edit machine, Puget Systems build some of the best edit machines in the marketplace. They also build amazing graphics machines, CAD machines. Uh, they are big into the virtual production space. So they're building machines that are used to run uh, all of the Unreal stuff for the volume spaces and right now it seems like everybody has some sort of volume production studio every person that goes to best buy and buys a bunch of fucking monitors <laughs> this is what it seems like i mean i just went through cinegear and it was just like oh cool you've got a volume space too and then you go into the room and it's just a wall of monitors and you're like what the fuck can i shoot in here man you know what i mean but anyway, there's a lot of you out there that want to get into that. Uh, these Puget uh, PCs are custom built. They run like monsters. Um, and the best part about Puget Systems is that they don't manufacture hardware. 
So they're not peddling off a warehouse full of their shit, which you know, if you listen to the show, is one of my biggest complaints. And so Puget Systems is always hunting and scouring. They're the first ones to get new hardware. They're benchmark testing new hardware with the software we use, and uh, they're putting together stats. They will tell you if it's worth picking up that new graphics card, because maybe it's not. You can use that money somewhere else. Isn't that the way you want to build something? Don't you want someone on your team that's there to help you put it together? It's kind of like when celebrities hire uh, their own little architect stylist for their houses. You know what I mean? And you have this person that's going to hold your hand and say, I know, I know you want to buy that giant banana chair and you're going to put it in this beautiful Spanish living room, but maybe you shouldn't because it's a lot of money and it looks like shit and it's not going to do what you want. You know what I mean? Can you tell that uh, Gene and I have been watching a lot of the Architectural Digest, you know, walkthroughs? Have you seen those? They're uh, like, uh, you know, Pimp My Ride or what was the uh, Cribs? They're the Cribs for architects and they're hysterical to watch. I should get some of those producers on the show because they're hysterical to watch where you the celebrities like, this is my home. I picked out the M&M's container. You know what I mean? These people with all this money that are just hiring these folks and just like, design my house for me, you know? Well, you can do that with Puget Systems. <laughs> uh, also supporting the show are friends at Fujifilm. Fujifilm. Uh, the cameras that both Gina and I are using consistently right now. Uh, I have the X-H2S which is an amazing 4K camera. It shoots ProRes. Um, I have my Photo Deox, a lens adapter. So I'm able to put all my signature, the, the, the lenses that I'm known for, uh, from my old Nikon days onto my new Fujifilm camera. And uh, they're going onto a larger sensor. My viewing angle is so much bigger with these things. I love it, I love it, I love it. Um, but also Gina's been shooting with the GFX100S which has uh, changed her game as a photographer. Uh, it is a large format camera that is very, has very great sensitivity in low light situations, which changes the game for medium format. Any of you who know medium format have been trying to shoot with that, you understand, especially if you're doing the film days, you understand that you're, you're restricted to maybe 500 ISO, and then those lenses are low, maybe three, four, uh, you know what I mean? And so you need a lot of light for them. And uh, if you find yourself in the situation that Gina does often, where she's directing and shooting photos at the same time, uh, we wanted to find a camera that she could utilize the lighting that she did for the filmmaking for photos. And so that was the main reason why we ended up hunting out, hunting down Fujifilm was because of the ISO and how beautiful it was and she could use the same lighting setup that she used to shoot the music video to do large format stills which are high enough quality to end up on a billboard in Times Square so Fujifilm I cannot endorse them enough I think they're great people and uh, I love their products um, and Photo Deox I slipped you guys in there again great company if you guys have a Fuji camera and you want to be able to adapt old mobile lenses to it, if you want to be able to adapt 
uh, PL mount lenses to it. Check out Photo Deox. The link is in our bio or in the description of this episode, rather. Um, great company. I use them consistently. Uh, the, this is the this is the you know the the chef's knife kit that I have when it comes to making movies and shooting projects. So. Um, let's see, who did I forget? Oh, our boys over at Boca Rentals. If you're in Los Angeles uh, and you're a filmmaker or a young cinematographer, I highly, highly, highly suggest you make a solid relationship with your local rental house, especially in this time right now where we're all out of work and no one's able to do anything or pitch anything or sell anything. This is the time to make your personal projects. I suggest you call up, write to, follow on Instagram, Boca Rentals. These guys give a shit. They just do. They're trying to form relationships with young cinematographers, young directors. That's what they do. And they, they their inventory of lenses is astounding. The stuff that they have access to is amazing. And we're talking the, 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 the best lenses in the marketplace right now. And if you have the other stuff that I talked about, you got that PL mount for your Fujifilm camera, you can go down there, try out some of those PL mount vintage lenses and start to create a look that is your own. Like Gina and I have worked very hard and you would be completely surprised by the combination of lenses and filters that we use to create her look. And it's like, you know, I'm not saying that we won't share it, but stick around at some point. we will. You know what I mean? Uh, so Boca Rentals, awesome place to go. Like I said, they're on Instagram. Great resource. Um, I love those guys. They've been supplying us for a while right now. Um, so check them out. All right, that's it. And finally, make sure you follow us at inlovewiththeprocess.com. That is the place to go for supplemental material for each of the episodes that you're listening to. I have some updating I have to do there, but that's the place to go. Uh, while you're listening to today's show, I'll try to put trailers up. I'll try to put everything together for you there. All right. Uh, it's also a place that you can check on sponsors, contests that we're running. I also have, uh, I, st I still think they're up there. I have Spotify playlists up there all sorts of fun shit so in love with the process.com all right let's get back to it funny hearing your stories about those other filmmakers because I, I feel like I so I sort through a lot of that with this show and I'm trying to address you know I I know that ego is often the shield for insecurity for a lot of folks that are in this business and I, I I'm constantly trying to explain to them like dude you have no idea <laughs> you have no idea the path I mean my path was a lot different than yours um but it was kind of similar it, like I, it took me, so I made a proof of concept uh, about a Russian drill team in the 1980s, and I did this movie that I directed in Russian. I don't speak Russian, which was a whole <laughs> thing, which was a lot of fun to do, um, and uh, made this film, and it got rejected from every film festival. 
And I, f- I came to find out that the reason it did was that even though film festivals say they'll accept shorts up to 40 minutes, mine was 30 minutes. And when I talked to programmers, they said, look, if we program your short, we lose four shorts or three shorts. Yeah. And so I got rejected from all that stuff. And uh, I was lucky that I had a friend of mine who was writing for a film blog. She wrote a great article on it, and I didn't make the film public for anybody. Mm-hmm. And uh, she wrote this article saying that this is a movie that Hollywood should make. And it was on one of those blogs that come to find out later that all the assistants of managers and agents read. Oh, that was cool. And so they got their hands on it, and they called me up and um, I had through a friend who came on board and asked me to write the feature with him. He had connections. And so we were going to go pitch it to Michael Bay's company A's anyway. And the agents found out about it and they said, uh, come and pitch to us first and then we'll send you on generals. And so that's how I got repped because of that. Uh, that's the whole process was because of that. And, and ironically, uh, the movie that, that stimulated everything for me was Blade Runner. Ironically, I ended up in Ridley Scott's office with this movie years later. <laughs> That's cool. So it was a fucking mind-blowing game. But I could not give you that formula as a young filmmaker and say, do this. Because even, even so, my agents and management rep uh, David Sandberg, and they assumed that they would get another Lights Out. And so mm-hmm. they were considering me their next lights out. And so they tried to use the same formula on me that they used on Sandberg. And the timing didn't work because it was, you know, during the, you know, Weinstein cancellation was, I think, the week that we went out and like everything else that was happening. So timing will fuck everything up on you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so here's the thing. I mean, I, I, I mean, I love that story. I also feel like it, it's funny hearing you talk about, um, some of the things you were doing, how much luck came into it. But at the same time, it's kind of like, you know, there's a lot of stuff that you can't control, but like you can control your output. And like, the fact is that, I mean, it's really interesting hearing your story because so much of it has to do with self-generating opportunities and like making a short that's 30 minutes long, by the way, I've done it. That's not that easy. No, <laughs> <you know? no. laughs> and and like it might feel like something then eventually through a series of um you know serendipitous things, um, you know, that short did a lot for you, but at the same time, like you know, you made the short. I mean, that is like a I I, I always wanna remind, you know, young filmmakers because they're always like yeah, I'm making these shorts. I don't know what's going on with them. I, it's really hard. You know, I'm getting rejections. And I'm like, just the fact that you're making a short that you woke up one day and you said, I am making a short film. You imagined how to do it and you brought together the team to do it. Like that is a huge accomplishment in and of itself. And in yes. some ways it's actually a lot harder than when you later on, it becomes a job where you're in a system because you have to create the system every time you make a short film. And that is a real feat of um, mental gymnastics and and proactivity. And um, no, I just wanted to commend you on that because I think man. it's Thank a you. lot of folks take it for granted because you 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 do it like that's very clear like that you're that's built into your DNA. But it is a hard thing to do day in and day out. It is, man. I appreciate you saying that, and and you just don't. I have a lot of folks asking me like, you know, when can I call myself a director? If you do that, you're a director, like you're, you're, you're a director. And there, there are Hollywood directors that I've had on the show that have watched the short before they come on the show and they go, how the fuck did you do this without mm-hmm. anything? And I, it's like, I just brought resources to get. And so all of that stuff and that training, 
that because you, you're right, it's really hard to make that shit. And all of that training and, and stuff is the, is what I bring to, to productions now. Like I'll talk mm -hmm. to producers that want to make something and they're like, all right, how do you want to run it? And it's just like, oh, okay, you want me to do it the way I've done these other things because you like the way those, those things work. Oh, okay, great. Mm -hmm. So now my backdoor weird way of doing things because I came from, I was still making those back in Boston. So like you're doing them in a, in a place that doesn't have a system in itself. You're suddenly rising to the top of that city and being the person that's creating the system for this stuff. Yeah. You know, it's wild, man. It's fun. Did you go to just to, to just for nostalgia's sake, did you go to BFVF when you were in Boston ever? Yes. Bo yes, I Boston did. Boston Film and Video Foundation. I don't even know if it exists anymore, but that, that was like a, the one place I remember that filmmakers would come in to speak. And yes. like, I remember um, <laughs> going to hear the, uh, it was a guy, it was the editor of The Verdict, um, <laughs> the Paul Newman movie. Yeah, yeah. And he came in to speak. And he mainly complained about the editing in Twister. <laughs> and I remember being like, I really like Twister, but I get what he's saying. <laughs> he complained about Twister and The Rock, I think. <laughs> so funny. Uh, no, where, where did I hang out back then? So I used to hang out at the Coolidge all the time. So Coolidge Corner mm -hmm. Theater was where I hung out totally. all the time. I love those guys. I still love Mark over here who does programming. Um, that, that was one of my favorite places to be. And, um, yeah, man, we like, I, 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 after I went to school in New York, I, I made a decision because I was spending so much time producing and shooting shorts in New York. And it was a pain in the ass because everything was a little bit more expensive and I didn't have any context. And I said to myself, look, if I go back and do this where I, where I know people, I can probably get twice the amount done. So I'll go back and start my own company. And, and I had read the stories of, you know, Robert Rodriguez and all these guys that, you know, mm -hmm. were able to bring Hollywood to them. And so for quite some time, that was my brainwashing where I said, hey, I'm, I'm going to do this. I started a production company and I was working there for 20 some years. And, wow. you know, I, I just kept hitting a ceiling there. And the ceiling for me was really with talent, with actors and with money. So mm -hmm. both those things were the reason why I ultimately ended up in Los Angeles, because it's like you need that. <laughs> so yeah i mean i think i had a similar um come to jesus moment uh when i was in new york you know i had i'd had my short uh, my feature at sundance and um there's a thing called the new york director's dinner and huh. you go to different people's houses or you go to a restaurant and, you, and at the time you know i made this movie and i was like well wow like i'm getting to meet like some of my heroes and mm -hmm. They went around the room uh, at each one of these dinners and they would talk about what they were working on. And also, um, and I appreciate it. I mean, it felt, it felt like they were, everyone was being very honest and it was just like working on this movie for eight years. I'm editing reality TV or I'm teaching. And um, what I realized was that um, if there was somebody who made a living doing indie film, I never met them during that time. And these were all of my heroes and they were either independently wealthy or they had to have second jobs. Yeah. And that was a real wake up call for me because um, suddenly it looked like this career path that I'd been pursuing for most of my life at that point um, didn't actually exist. And yeah. that's when I was like, you know, I, 
at least have a context for what it means to work in TV. And those folks that worked in TV, I just love that they actually had lives. It didn't feel like I was going to be constantly acting like I was in my twenties and not being able to make money. (laughs) And, um, and and then also like at the time, you know, this was 2011, 2012. And, um, you know, there was, it was the beginning of that kind of like first golden age of, you know, streaming. And, you know, I, I just felt that there was something really interesting happening in TV, even if I couldn't put my finger on it. And so, decided to move out to Los Angeles and, and pursue TV writing. Yeah. Smart, man. You like, I think I'm a bit more bullheaded. <laughs> and so I think I've been, <laughs> I've been, I've been in the game of, you know, I, like I said, I ran a successful commercial production company. I, I, I kind of got lost. My path was a little different. I, I, I kind of got lost in it because I said, all right, well, we have to make a living. And, and initially mm-hmm. I had a business partner back then. And I said, look, Let's do a production company and we'll bank money and we'll make movies, but we'll do the production company. And then like six years go by and you find yourself just trying to keep the lights on in the production company. You're trying to, you know, keep the people employed that are around you and you're just doing like, you know, bullshit sneaker commercials. And you're like, what the fuck am I doing? Like, I, I really hit a point. Mm-hmm. And, f- and for me, I've talked about it on the show, but for me, it was when uh, I went on this date. I, I met this girl and I went on a date. And we went ice skating and I had never been ice skating before. And she dragged me out and uh, put me on the ice and uh, put ice skates on for the first time, stepped onto the ice, slipped, fell backwards and, and cracked my skull. And I ended oh up, God. yeah, hundred percent dude. And I, I ended up uh, waking up to a doctor with a flashlight in my eyes and he's looking down at me and he says, uh, so here's the deal. I'm not going to sugarcoat it. Uh, you've cracked your skull. You have a hematoma forming on the top of your brain. Uh, normally oh what God. we do is we drill into the hematoma uh, to uh, release the pressure, but it's on the main blood vessel in your brain. So if we drill there too deep, you bleed out and you die. Um, you should probably call your family. And uh, we, can't oh really, we, we can't really let you go to sleep. Uh, so we'll see if the bleeding stops and we'll go from there. Um, and so I was in intensive care for about five days going through these series of crazy hallucinations from lack of sleep and the pressure of my brain. And, and uh, that's when I uh, came up with the idea for what my movie, my proof of concept was. Mm-hmm. And I remember like sort of being on my deathbed going like, Ugh, you know, how's my life been? You have one of those questions, you know, like, how's mm-hmm. my life? My family's good. This girl that I met who, even though she tried to murder me, <laughs> uh, she's really cool. And, you know, like I, I ran a successful production company. I worked with some of the biggest rock stars for music videos. All that stuff's really great. But I didn't make a fucking movie. And that, that was the fucking thing that I wanted to do. And I didn't do that. And I remember just being upset about it. And when I pulled through, it took about five months of recovery to be fully recovered. Um, and the doctor finally saying like, what do you do for a living? And I'm like, Oh, it's stressful, brother. <laughs> He's like, okay, <laughs> you can kind of go back to it. And uh, I, I, I had written a proof of concept while uh, recovering and, and immediately just went into production on the short. So that, that was, cool. that was what changed everything for me. Sort of made it different, but uh, yeah. Anyway. That's amazing. I mean, it's, it's, um, you know, I think it's one of these things I I I I see with um, a lot of creative folks, where it's like you do one thing to get experience or to um, to 
be close to the industry. Um, yeah. But then it ends up taking over a lot of your life. And um, it's one of the things I, you know, for all of our support staff who are all, you know, great writers, um, I, I'm always telling them like, okay, like just know that you're like part of me hiring you is I want you to have the time to work on your own stuff. Um, because it's really important because you don't want to be an assistant forever. And that's only going to happen if you continue to like work on your craft and, um, frankly, like have samples to send out, you know, and, um, yeah, but it's hard. You know, I, I, I know so many folks who, even when you're doing something really high level, like if you're staffing and writing on other people's shows, I, I know a lot of folks who have gone, even though that, you know, from the outside, that always looks really good. They're, they're kind of like, if I haven't done my own show or I haven't done the show that I really wanted to do. And it's a hard trap to get out of. Um, yes. So I hear you. Well, dude, I, I mean, I, I, I'll admit it. I was, I was afraid. I was def, I was definitely afraid. And there's, there was a, there's a big difference between doing your own things, right? Doing your own little shorts and doing your own little stuff. And like, I built a world in which I was the boss consistently. Like I, I really mm-hmm. wasn't reporting to anybody. So like I, I ran the production company, I did all my own stuff and that was fear. Right. Cause it was like, look, if, if I have, if I'm the boss, then there's no failure. I'm not, there isn't failure coming from the top. Mm-hmm. Um, and it took me a while to sort of realize that that's what I was doing. I was just sort of digging myself in a corner and, uh, you know, I, I, and then I, I was afraid of what I didn't know. And then once I started playing in the game, I was like, oh, really? <laughs> this is, if I go back in time and be like, dude, they don't even know what they're doing. <laughs> I'd be like, all right, I'm in, I'm in, I'm in, I'm in, you know? But I was afraid, man. I, I could, that's why I didn't do it for so long, you know? Um, but anyway. No, I get it. <laughs> but anyway, we, I, f- I feel like we got a little derailed. Um, no, that's great. It's just, it's nice to like, listen, I mean, this is, I, I feel like this is, it's just cool to hear your story, you know? Thanks, man. Definitely. Thanks, man. I, I, I mean, that's kind of what I want this show to be. It's just a conversation. And I, you know, I know that a lot of times people come on and they have to promote things and that's the purpose of it. But the, the, and then the show just becomes that stuff that, yeah, I was telling you about earlier where you're like skimming through going like, well, what's the reality here? Like, how did you, how did you actually make it? You know, and, and you know, we could talk about the new gremlin show. I mean, it, it, it's cool. <laughs> 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 you know, like what's it like working uh, with like Spielberg and Joe Dante as the executive producers? Do you ever see those guys? Are they in the office that often? Are you, could, are you worried about their opinions on what you're doing? <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I think, um, I mean, just, just, just kind of going back, like it was such a journey to get to the point where, um, even to pitch on something like gremlins. Um, yeah. but you know, I also felt like, I felt like I was ready at that point. And, um, there's like a, so basically after my, after I moved back out to LA, to pursue TV. Um, yep. And just, this is just trying to peel back the layers so that um, people know just how hard it was to get to this point. <laughs> yeah, let's do it, man. And, um, you know, I moved out to LA. Uh, I did the same thing I did with my shorts. I said, all right, I'm going to book a ticket for um, three months from now, and then I'm going to write three pilots. And I did that. 
Um, and two of the pilots never did anything for me, but one of them, um, the one that my agents were like, I don't think you should write that one. Um, it was the one that I was the most passionate about and, um, <laughs> got out to LA and, uh, and sold it, um, and went through development on it. Um, and I went through development on it at the same time I was directing my second feature, uh, which was called comes the night with Brian Cranston. And oh, wow. yeah. it was really hard. You know, um, I was shooting 14 hours a day. I didn't want to give up the opportunity of this TV job. And, um, I was going home and writing for an hour or two a night and then going to sleep and then shooting the next day. And, um, one of the things I tell people who are coming up is just like, there's going to be times where you're going to be given opportunities that you think are going to be impossible in terms of like time and mental health. And you have to protect yourself to some degree. But I also feel like for me, I always want to do the thing that I thought might be impossible just so that I wouldn't be scared of doing it anymore. (laughs) And that was probably the first of those situations where I was like, it's too much work to do every day, but I feel like I can, I should just do it that way. I'm not scared if this ever comes up again. Um, and then the pilot did not get picked up. Um, I I just felt I wasn't that good at the development process. I, I didn't know how to do it. I didn't know how to juggle notes. And um, well, so did, I, the, did the pilot not I, getting fucked? Up, did the pilot not getting picked up uh, end up spiraling you? Did you go into a depression based upon that? Like, what was the aftermath? No, I mean, I was pretty honest with myself about. Um, you know, I, I, I tried to look at it from the outside. And basically, at the time, CW was looking for their version of Game of Thrones. And so it was us against um, a show called Rain that ended up um, going on for a few seasons. Mm. And when they picked Rain over my project, which is also a medieval project, um, I looked and I was like, of course they did. Like the showrunners of that other show have a combined 50 years of experience. They know what they're doing. And, and it was a, it was a real like, um, wake up where I was like, they're not buying just the script. They're buying the people who can run the show. And I clearly, I couldn't even do the notes particularly well. Why would they trust me to run a show? Mm. So I went to my agents. I said, um, I want to know that the next time I sell something that I can run it competently. And that I think means I want to staff on a hundred episodes of television and, Wow. I went into staffing. I did two years of Once Upon a Time and three years of Gotham. And I did like uh, I did exactly a hundred episodes of TV during that time. And um by the time I came through that gauntlet of those five years, I felt really confident that I could run a show um when the time came. And it was also that the showrunners were 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 really great mentors. Um on Gotham, John Stevens, my showrunner, would always have me run the network and studio calls. And he would always say, when you're running a show, you need to know how to talk to the studio and how to talk to the network. And I really learned a lot on on those years. And um, coming out of Gotham, I got double promoted my last year. So I skipped a step and was a supervising producer, I believe. And so I ended up on a list of you know with Warner Brothers when they were looking for somebody to um, pitch on gremlins. And by the time I, you know, got into that room, I felt like night and day from the first experience when I sold something. Fascinating. That's interesting. Okay. So then it's, even though we were talking earlier about how the structure really isn't there for TV, there still is some kind of little bit of structure that's there, right? Where like you're getting put on a list essentially. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
And I think it was just that that last year of Gotham, um, it was a shorter season. I think I had proven myself to some degree, um, but it was also some serendipity. You know, um, I had gone to dinner with my friend and um, his, his uh, at the time, boyfriend, now husband, and um, uh, he happened to work at Amblin. And so when they were going through the list um, at Warner Brothers and Amblin, you know, comparing notes, my name came up and you know, my, my buddy's boyfriend was like, um, Oh, I, I recognize that name yeah. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. brought me in to meet, you know, I was, I, I met, um, I think they were, they were relatively, um, respectful of my, of like everyone's time. I really appreciated that. Like they only brought in, I think maybe three or four people, um, to pitch on it as opposed to like a huge cattle call. Um, yeah. and yeah. they were like, just come in and talk to us. Don't, don't come up with a pitch. Um, and, um, that one was relatively low pressure because I just felt like I could just talk about it. And then when they were kind of like, it's going to be yours, but you have to go pitch Amblin. Um, that's when I started to get really anxious. And, um, <laughs> and uh, I remember, you know, I had, I was walking into Amblin. I got there like way too early. It was like, I should have just, I was like kind of pacing around. <laughs> and then finally I was like, oh, I don't even know how to get inside this like building. And then the head of Warner brothers animation showed up and I had met him for the first time, like in the parking lot. And then I went into pitch, you know, the heads of Amblin um, it was like a pre-pitch before I pitched um, Spielberg, you know, a, a month later. Yeah. And as I was talking, I was in this room that I know that I had been working my whole life to get into. Yeah. And I, st- I started to black out. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like I could feel like the darkness kind of tunneling um, yeah. and like kind of falling back in my own head. And I remember I was still talking, but I remember thinking like, if you pass out, it's going to change the tenor of this meeting. <laughs> Absolutely. So you cannot pass it. And so I just like worked my way through all the years later, I told them, you know, this one, Oh, you didn't seem like you were going to pass out at all. I was like, I was razor's edge. So just see, this is just all in the category of like, it's not as glamorous as it always looks. No, <laughs> no. I had a very similar thing. Keep going, but I had a very similar thing in Ridley's office. Where uh-huh. I'm like, I'm gonna, uh, what, what, what am I doing? Like, you suddenly feel like you've been abducted by aliens and yeah. dropped in another place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's funny. Man. Oh, God. Um, so, okay, so the pitch went well, even though you didn't, you didn't black out. <laughs> it didn't black out. Um, we then pitched it to. Uh, this is how long ago we sold it. It was the first thing I think that was bought by unnamed Warner Media streaming service. Mm-hmm. It was like four and a half years ago. Mm-hmm. There's been two name changes since then. And um, Joe Dante, we brought on as a as a um, consulting producer um, to get his sign off was really important. And then once we came up with like the true season pitch. Um, uh, you know, Spielberg had been weighing in on things and he always weighs in on everything, but, um, then we went and pitched him, um, uh, at Warner brothers and how was that in the category, in the category of like, also not, not as glamorous as things look from the outside. I was so stressed out that I went and I stress ate a uh, seven piece Popeye's fried chicken meal, like in the Why? parking lot in my car. <laughs> Why would you do that? <laughs> I was just like, I know this is going to calm me down. I have not eaten all day and like I've waited too long and I don't want to, I already almost passed out at Amblin. I don't want to pass out in front so of So you want to go in there a greasy mess. 
So I'm like in my car eating and I saw Spielberg and his entourage like crossing the street. And I was, I remember like ducking down while still eating. Like, he can't see, he can't see me eating this fried chicken. It's going to be super weird when I show up in 10 minutes. Um, oh, and fun. he was great. You know, we pitched him and um, it was actually very sweet and very moving to me um, in that we were done pitching. And he was like, the first thing he asked was, um, um, what has Joe seen and is he happy? And it was just nice. Like after, you know, 30 something years since they had worked together on Gremlins and Gremlins 2, you know, Spielberg was still like very um, yeah uh, invested in the filmmakers that he had supported. So I thought that was really cool. That's really cool, man. I love those stories, dude. I love those stories. <laughs> it's kind of what I, it, you know, the depressing thing about being out here at post COVID is that everything now is zoom calls and you're not mm-hmm. really getting that same sort of experience. But luckily I, I, I came out here like a, a few months before COVID happened. And I had a couple general meetings where you would go in and out of places and, and uh, it's just, it, it's magical. Like there, there's mm-hmm. a piece of me that's still, I love going on Warner brothers lot. I think it's like one of the more magical fucking studio lots. And, um, you just sort of, I can't help myself. I, like I get my past, even though I'm not supposed to, I'm like walking through into like the props department and shit and, like, uh-huh. and meeting people. Cause it's like, it's such a fucking cool and magical place. You know? I mean, after our first meeting with Joe Dante, um, I was like, Oh, are you, are you driving back home? He was like, you know, I'm going to take a walk down memory lane. And, um, we were shooting it. We were we were working at the Warner Brothers Ranch, which is kind of like a satellite studio. Yeah. Um. But Billy's Billy's exterior, you know, of his house from the original Gremlins movies is on that lot in a fake cul-de-sac. Whoa. And it's just always cool to like walk around and be like, and, and you know, even like the Mister Wings um, curio shop uh, from the original movies is on the Warner Brothers lot, and if you walk by, you can see the little alleyway um, and so stairs cool. down, and it's just cool to just walk through a place with so much history. I mean, I, I, I never got tired of, um, of walking around the lot and, and just, you know, seeing all the, the cool stuff that, you know, have contributed to, you know, a hundred years of entertainment. Yeah, man. I love it, dude. And, and then, you know, what, what do you think was the, uh, the ingredients of your pitch that really got them invested in the story for you? Like, is it, was it the family? Was it the, was it the family element or like, what, what was it that, that got them. You know, I, I, we, they, they had had the idea. Um, Sam Register had met with Spielberg and pitched him like a 15 second pitch about, well, what if we did a Gremlins animated prequel? Um, and it's, uh, it was a younger version of the old Mr. Wink from the original movies. And so that was a framework that I was pitching within, but they really didn't have like a picture of what they wanted beyond that. And when I came in, um, I remember, Again, they didn't ask me to put together a pitch, but I had some bullet points that I wanted to talk about. And one of them was I, I didn't want to do it um, like kind of episode of the week. I wanted to do something really serialized. I wanted it to feel big and epic and every episode pushing the story forward in a way where it felt like you're kind of watching a, a 10 episode, mm. you know, Amblin movie from mm-hmm. the 80s. You know, those are the movies that I grew up watching and loving. And, um, wanting to do something where, yeah, it's kids um, as the main characters, but it's life or death stakes. Uh, things like Goonies and Gremlins, you know that that that's kind of what they're about. Is it's, it's the stakes are high, um, 
And then part of my pitch was also I wanted to weave in all the Chinese mythology and mm. creatures and spirits and monsters that I grew up with. And um, that was really important to me. And, you know, I talked a little bit about, you know, when you do something in the Western mythology, like werewolves and vampires and zombies, like I love, I love that those genres, but there's also like a, a context that audiences already have for it. Whereas if you're doing something from China, a lot of those spirits and creatures, the audience is learning at the same time. And so that was really exciting to me to be like, there's also a little bit of a mystery element to each episode because you're trying to figure out what makes these monsters and creatures and spirits tick. Very and, cool. um, Chinese spirits and monsters are also kind of like the gremlins in that they have their rules. They're really scary, but they're also really funny and weird. And so I just felt like the tones could support each other. Mm. And, um, and one thing that they said was like, if you want to, you can expand the mythology of the Mogwai. And so that was one of the things I really got excited about um, in the pitch. And um, uh, kind of explaining the background of like why the Mogwai exist where they come from and there's not just one of them you know there's there's obviously like an ancestral homeland in the uh yeah in the in the series it's very cool man all right i see why you got it <laughs> <laughs> it's a good pitch man it, it seems like a good format for you to tell a lot of stories that you want to tell too are you excited about it yeah i mean we've got two seasons that are in the can pretty much so we're just finishing up post on the second season and so you know it's, it's really been exciting to see pe- people watching it after um you know we've worked on it for a long time i didn't have any idea how long animation took but um yeah you know i worked on it for two years before working on i'm a virgo and they're both coming out within a month of each other (laughs) so that goes to show how long animation takes (laughs) well dude it's it's inspiring to hear your story it's inspiring to hear you know, the steps that you've taken, um, you know, it's, uh, I enjoy listening to your story because I feel like you and I were like running kind of parallel paths at the same <laughs> time, which is fun. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's nice to hear that you are, are still working and doing really good stuff, dude. Um, what's, what's next for you? Do you have, uh, are you going to do any more films? Are you going to stick in TV? What are you thinking? So, um, you know, I'm a Virgo comes out in June, June 23rd. Um, before the writer's strike happened, I was uh, show running the second season of that show. Um, we were in the writer's room, so we paused that um, for the strike. And then I also have um, my comic book company, TKO Studios, and we publish um, uh, books by top creators like Garth Ennis, who did The Boys, uh, Jeff Lemire, who did Sweet Tooth, Roxanne Gay, um, a bunch of really uh, superstar creators and a lot of up and coming folks. And part of the last couple of years has been putting together the film and TV adaptations for those, mm-hmm. um, which Tikiya will produce or co-produce. And then on the feature side, I've got a movie that I've been, um, it's with Nina Yang Bon Jovi and um, who's producing, but we've just been trying to figure out a, a, a hole in the schedule um, that I can go off and direct that. But you know, I, I I feel very lucky in that um, I was able to work through the pandemic. Um, I did two years of Zoom rooms, and because of animation, we were still able to continue working. Uh, and then, you know, working in this live action show, kind of once the ground rules for COVID and shooting during COVID had 
mm-hmm. had been established. You know, I, I do feel very lucky in the last like five years, I've still really been able to, to, to be working um, consistently. And, um, yes. and yeah, that's kind of, you know, I, we're going to have to see how long this strike goes, but um, yeah, just trying to work on personal projects during this time. And um, like you, like, I feel like, you know, there's always a good time to um, reassess and to take a step back and to get off the treadmill for a second and be like, okay, yeah, I'm doing all these things. This is exactly what I want to be doing. What's next? How do I just reformulate a strategy and a pathway forward? Um, As you can tell, like, I'm I'm like, I, I try to be relatively strategic when it comes to this stuff, but part of that is, that deep down thing of like, am I really happy right now? Yeah. What are the parts of my life that I'm not happy with? What are the parts of my career that I, I could do be, be doing better and, um, yeah. and taking the time to reassess that is really important. And I'm hoping that the, that's what this, the strike will at least provide. For yeah. Me, even though yeah. it's hard. Yeah, dude, it's good for you. Like I just went, I went through something similar after COVID because prior to COVID, we had another project that was with James Wan and we were going around and we were trying to get it sold and trying to get it pitched and, and every there was every fucking bad timing reason, you know. COVID was on the mm-hmm. horizon, and so I went through this whole process of having a project that I spent. I, I wrote three hundred something pages of director's prep. I spent about mm-hmm. a year and change just prepping this thing, and then it just slowed down to a stop. And um, it was just incredibly depressing. And I like I found mm-hmm. myself falling into this depression and like being like, ah, what am I doing with this business? And um, luckily. I uh, really fell into it with a friend of mine who's an actor and him and I just were sitting around all the time and we were just talking and supporting each other. And then we started to talk about characters. And then I sort of hit a point where I said, well, why don't we just shoot something? And then I was like, let me just shoot something in the garage. And so then I started to put something together to shoot it in the garage. And then I shot this beautiful scene in the garage. And then everybody's like, well, you have to shoot more. <laughs> and then next thing you know, <laughs> next thing you know, I find like this uh, studio in like downtown Los Angeles that you can rent an underwater tank by the hour. And we're shooting underwater stuff and we're doing all sorts of really fun things. And, and then fast forward, you know, a month later, uh, you know, sort of clearing my way, like a groundhog pulling myself out of a depression, sort of clearing out and just going, I shot the best thing I've ever fucking shot, man. And I shot it in my garage. Mm-hmm. So sometimes you just need that, that rebuild, you know? I mean, I think it's really important. Um, you know, that story kind of reminds me of, um, I think it's really hard, you know, when you work so hard for something and it doesn't, it doesn't come through necessarily in the way that you had pictured it. Um, that kind of like resilience that you're talking about is, is really important. And, and that's part of the reason why I think, you know, I try to be incredibly honest on podcast and on Twitter about failures and things that didn't go my way. And, um, yeah, I think, um, one of the things I think, you know, we talked about it a little bit, but like the fact that, you know, your fallback position is to produce and to create something, um, I think is like a really admirable and it's a, it's a really hard thing to do, you know, again, like to wake up and be like, that didn't work out, but I'm going to shoot something today. That's a very yeah. difficult thing to, to do, but I also think, you know, one thing that I always think about is there was a moment where I was pitching on, you know, I was pitching shows with two heroes of mine. Um, and I pitched on a Marvel movie. I didn't, none of those things sold. Um, yeah. and it was right before gremlins happened. So it was pretty rough. Cause I was like, wow, I'm, 
I'm doing, I'm in the rooms, but I'm not, I'm not getting these jobs. And I, and looking back on it, actually the pattern that I should have been looking at was, but you are in the rooms and you are pitching on them. And eventually something is going to happen because it's just a numbers game. But when you first do it and there's two or three rejections, you're like, wow, like I'm so close. Um, But that is something I, I, I do tell, um, younger filmmakers and TV writers, uh, which is as long as you're going into bigger and bigger opportunities, even if they are not working out, the fact that you're there means that something is going to happen. Um, that doesn't, that that's, you're on the right pathway and the pattern has not emerged yet because the sample size is small. Um, but it will happen for you. Yeah, that's smart, man. That's smart. It's a good way to look at it. And I think that the the reason that they end up being so tough, and I've talked about this on the show, and I won't go on too long, but um, the reason they end up being so tough for me is that uh, there's no such thing as dipping your toes in halfway on any of these things that you do. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I remember, I may have said this story before, but I'll do it again. I, I remember... I got asked to buy, uh, I think the agent sent me a script and he says, hey, why don't you read the script? And if you like it, we'll set up a meeting, go in there and do a pitch and put together, you know, uh, a deck and put together everything for it. And I I looked at it and I said, uh, this is a bigger movie, man. And I said to him, I said, what are my chances of getting this movie? And he's like, pretty slim. And so mm-hmm. I was like, all right. And so like, you, and it, this is after doing a couple of things. And so I went home and I'm like, how much fucking time do I want to spend on this thing? Like it's it's something that I'm probably not going to get. So I I just half-assed uh, uh, a deck. I put something together with a bunch of my old tricks, mm-hmm. and I sent it to my guy. And my 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 uh, agent or my manager was like, "What the fuck is this?" <laughs> he's like, <laughs> "He's like, what are you what are you doing?" And I said, I'm, I'm, "I put something together. It'll be great. I'll go in there and I'll I'll, I'll tell him about it." And he's like, "Dude, no, you have to." what are you going to do with this movie? You have to develop these characters. You have to fall in love with all these people. I go, yeah, but I'm probably not going to get it. He goes, yeah, but that's the fucking job, dude. And I'm like, okay. And so then I read the script again. I fell in love with everything again. I, I, I put together this piece. Like I saw the, the movie in my eyes and went through the whole process of just feeling like I made this film in my, in my mind. And then I went in and I did a, a, a crushing, really great pitch to this room and they loved it and they, they were just like we're just looking for someone that has more future experience but we loved your pitch and uh you know i then walked out of the room and i went fuck it <laughs> like everything died and all my characters <sighs> died in my mind and i was just like ah it, it, but that's the job you know and i was lucky to get in that room and you know who knows you know, years from now, I might meet those people again. That may be something, but more than anything, I proved to my my representation that I wasn't just slacking my way through it, and that that I gave a shit. And to myself, like the skills that I learned prepping that piece and putting those things together, I then rolled right into the next thing that I was doing, and then rolled that into the next thing I'm doing. So totally. it takes. A little- I I I think that one of the things I I mean. I, I know on this podcast, I feel like I'm I'm coming across as somebody who's just like always giving advice. To no, dude, dude, it's fine. Players. It's fine. That's but, what the show is. <laughs> but I, I do feel like one of the things I tell younger filmmakers is um, there's going to be a lot of rejection. And there's also projects that you really care about that maybe you think are going to be your first project. That Maybe it's your second or your third project. And the thing to remember is that like, 
even though we all care about our projects really deeply and it always feels like we're going to die if we're not going to be able to make them. Yeah. <laughs> um, you're still like the project is short term and you're, you are long term and like your skill set that you develop over creating these things, even if they are, maybe they don't do what you want them to do. Maybe it dies in development. Um, I always just think it was, it's disappointing, but at the same time, you know, I'm a much better. Every, I mean, everything I write, I'm a, I, I'm a much better writer at the, at the, at the back end. You know, once mm. it's, whether the project dies or not, um, and mm. that experience is something that doesn't go away. You know, that is a, that is a given that you get that experience. Mm-hmm. I agree with you completely, man. Well, I should uh, wrap this up, even though I'm having a blast talking with you, dude. <laughs> <laughs> this has been uh, this a is really great fun. show. Yeah, man. This has been a great episode. Uh, I'm very happy to have been uh, able to sit here and just, you know, you know, talk about our careers together. <laughs> it's like, as always, the show ends up being a therapy session <laughs> in, in one way or another. But, um, dude, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much for coming on and sharing with us. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's, it's really cool to, to, to sit down and talk through this stuff. And uh, everybody should go check out the new Gremlin series. It is on, it's Max now. It's on Max. (laughs) It's it's what they're calling. (laughs) So uh, go check it out, man. It's fun. It's a lot of fun to watch. Right, there's today's episode in the can ah man i really like z he's a cool dude there's something just you, you just feel safe and let me let me be let me be transparent as i like to do on this show uh you never know with guests right um i i had written to z i don't know if i wrote to him on instagram or if i wrote to him on probably on twitter and i was just like dude i'd love to have you on the show right um, and I had seen some of his work, but really he showed up on my radar because uh, I saw that he was promoting the new Gremlins thing. And I said, oh, that's cool. That'd be fun to talk about, even though we barely talked about it on the show. Um, and um, you just never know. Like I've had other guests that have been on the show, which when you meet, uh, here's how I record the episodes. I don't use cameras. I, I don't even have a camera on when I'm doing it, right? Because... I don't want the guests to feel uh, awkward in any way. And it, when I finally do shows that are filmed, I want them to look good. I don't. You guys don't need to see what I'm wearing today, unless I have it set up right, unless it's lit correctly. And for me to churn these things out at the level that I do, you know, scaling up this production would just make it slower, right? And you guys really enjoy the content this way, so why fuck with the system, you know? But anyway. Um, one of the things that happens is is when I when I meet these guests, it's just a voice. It's like getting on the phone with a stranger. So there's a voice on his end, there's a voice on my end. And oftentimes I have the advantage because I'm putting my stuff through a nice microphone. So they're hearing the voice that you're hearing right now, which is a little weird at first, right? And for some people, uh, I try to break it pretty quick. For some people, they just jump right in. So within a minute or two minutes, uh, I've had a guest recently that Jesus, man, like when I was pre-doing him before the show, he was completely distracted. I was like, are you fucking ready to do this? Like, what are we doing here? 
And he's like, well, let's go, let's go. And it's, it's like one of those things. And I'm like, okay. And then I start rolling and he just turns on his voice and he just runs with it. Um, but with Z, I feel like we were timid at the beginning, but we just really found our rhythm pretty quickly. Um, and I think that's because he's not afraid to share. And I think that's because he's, hasn't, he's never been afraid um, to let uh, a younger filmmaker, uh, a younger artist... Uh, understand uh, what it took because this guy was dude he's making features in, in high school come on man what was I doing in high school I was moody in a motorcycle jacket you know what I mean so uh, it was a good episode I, I'm very happy to have met him uh, I'm happy that you guys got to be part of our first conversation and uh, what did you think let me know write to me on Instagram at Mike Petchy drop me a note tell me what you thought of today's episode uh, tell me what you think of what we're doing with the show so far. we It's been a while since I've talked about numbers on the show. And uh, this week, I'm looking at this on the 6th. This is what I'm recording this episode. Uh, our numbers are up, up, up right now, which is great. Australia. Lots of new listeners from Australia. Who's out there from Australia listening right now? Sydney. Big place. There are folks out there. I've got folks from uh, Florida listening. Big numbers from Florida. Big numbers from Denver, 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 uh, big numbers from Spain. Hell yeah, man. What is going on from Spain? Uh, Cartagena, Spain. Who's listening? Drop me a note. Tell me who you guys are. I'm always curious when these numbers start rolling through. How'd you guys hear about me? Was it on Instagram? Was it connected to 12KM? Uh, what was it, man? Melbourne, Melbourne. Jesus, your mouth is not working right now. Melbourne, Australia, uh, Turkey. A lot of Turkey folks, as always. A big fan base in Turkey right now. Uh, anyway, I love all you guys and girls out there. Thanks for listening to the show. You make it possible for us to do this by listening. Make sure you click the links for our sponsors just to let them know that you are listening. It's that simple. I'm not saying you to buy anything from these people. They'll probably hate me for saying that, but I just click the links, man. It just lets them know that you're listening. Uh, and that's important to us and to the show. And uh, if you really want to help us out, tell two of your friends to listen to this podcast. You have at least two friends that are like, what are podcasts that, you, that are you listening to that are great? Uh, and you could say, well... I've got this one show that's, you know, mediocre. You should listen to Mike's show. <laughs> All right. That's it, man. Lots on the way. New episodes being recorded as we speak. <laughs> uh, and uh, as always, I'll see you next Tuesday. All right. Bye. Bye.